Welcome to Catholic Stuff You Should Know, a J10 initiative. Hey, welcome back to the podcast. Father John, Father Nathan, here we are again. Hello. Lovely Littleton, Colorado, on a beautiful early uh, Monday afternoon here. Chartreuse still flowing on here, the Feast of St. Bruno. About to record our first podcast without any technical complications. God help us. I... Yeah, I don't know. Computer's about that. probably going to crash here in a second. So, Father Nathan, you're doing well today. Yep, Good. we're doing all right. You ready to go? I guess. You got nothing to say? Um, nothing has changed in the last ten minutes since we uh, finished the last podcast. Pretty much, like, yeah, I don't know. I'm going to sneeze. <laughs> That's all I know. <laughs> Let it go. <laughs> well, I guess we'll just go into the topic. How does that sound? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, After a sneeze like that. Usually, I mean, we haven't been very good about getting our podcasts, uh, like doing two at a time. So this is the first time that we've done two in we're a while. Of, so, so usually it's like, hey, welcome back. It's been a week, but it's been ten minutes. So. That's right. Well, we're trying to be consistent here, and we're kind of in a um, slew of intense topics. I would say, yeah. Not that Macro Marvels wasn't amazing and exciting, <laughs> and as you were snoring off on me, Bill Nye, the Science Guy. But we did the truth. And then Our Lady of Sorrows, and today, Maximilian Colby, you know. He's great. He's great. He's amazing, actually. So well, wash it down with a little chartreuse. There we go. We'll get through it. So we'll uh, we'll jump into it here. So again, like we talked about last week, um, spent a lot of time at Marytown uh, in uh, Chicago, Illinois. Yep. And um, Which, if you don't know, is right outside of Mundelein Seminary. So Mundelein, Illinois, Libertyville, Illinois. It's on the border in between Libertyville and Mundelein, but close enough on the grounds of Mundelein that you can walk over. Near uh, Glenview, where I grew up playing hockey. That's where I first learned to skate, oh. age four. Mary and Apple put the skates on us and said, all right, John, time to learn. That's why we, we can't run. We run like hockey players because we were skating before we were kind of really mm-hmm. playing other sports. Yep. Now the battle begins, will my nephew play hockey? Yeah. And, uh, that my brother-in-law said no because hockey has, quote, no transferable skills. If you want to email the podcast and weigh in on this, I think it would be nice to forward on a few emails to Jordan and Katie. So. Actually, we would love to love to get some consensus here. So should my nephew be a hockey player like his great uncles? Uh, or will it just hinder his ability to play other sports such as soccer, baseball? I don't know. Squash. Squash. Hockey players make great golfers. Synchronized swimming. And uh, spike ball players, you know? You're, oh, an, you're an okay golfer. Too soon, too soon. You're an okay oh. golfer. Is that, well, I'm not a good golfer, but spike ball. Is it too soon? No. World, world champions. That's fine. Myself and Molly Rogan, world champs. Actually, uh, yesterday I was over at a family's house. Let's see if I can remember the name. Alex and Becky uh, Persichetti. Okay. Uh, so the Zigglers. Uh, oh, Becky, yeah. Becky Ziggler. So I baptized their baby, Declan John. Um, and they invited me over and they said, would you like to play... Um, bags, you know, like what's that game called? You know, bags it depends. It's regionally has different names. Cornhole, cornhole, bags yeah. is I think yeah. Ohio. I think they call it. Yeah, bags. okay. So they asked me, and I said, you know, as as funny, funny as it is, like I'm from the Midwest, and the Midwest uh, yard games consist of one motion. I've said this, like you throw your arm forward. <laughs> so horseshoes, throw your arm forward. Washers, throw your arm forward. Cornhole, throw your arm forward. Lawn golf, throw your arm forward. You know what I'm saying? Bocce. Bowling, 
Bocce. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, but uh, I'm horrible at it. And my dad is like a bags champion. So uh, they said, do you want to play it? You know, I'm not really that good, but fine. You know, we'll play. Yeah, I so, remember how bad you are because we lost to Becky. Shut Becca. up. <laughs> and Maggie. I yeah, almost called did. her Becky. Yeah, that uh, was that wasn't a regulation set. I don't that know. was not, and it was dark outside. Well, they seemed to do all and the right. The bags were too light. Well, anyways, so we're playing, and uh, I'm playing with Alex, and my partner is his wife Becky. So um, Alex and I are throwing against one another, and we are racking up the points, but like we're canceling each other out. So like I would score like ten, and he would score like nine, right. and then he would score like six, and then I would score four. So it was really close. We're, uh, it's like 12 to 13. That's the score. Becky throws four straight ringers. Whoa. Four straight in. It was amazing. And I, we were just talking about it. Like I'd never seen that before. And then bam. Bam. Which reminds me of another story. If I can gloat for just a second. We're kind of short on time here. Shut up. (laughs) Okay. Do you remember when we were in Steamboat Springs and we were playing pool at that American Legion or VFW? And, I do, I do. And then I was telling the story about how my dad and my mom were on their honeymoon, and they were shooting pool, and uh, my dad said, if you if you hit the ball, if you hit the eight ball in off the break, it's an automatic win. And uh, he's explaining this, and then he does it. And my mom's like, you just lost. He's like, no, I told you, if you hit it off the break, like you win. And I'm telling you this story, and then you're, you guys are like, do you remember this? No. Shut up. I don't. Anyways, yeah, this happened, and then uh, very next time I break, and you, hit the eight ball in, and it's over. That's amazing. It's so, too bad there's no historical I'm witness so to this. I'm so awesome. You know? Well, speaking of awesomeness, of all the yard games, spike ball. Let's get back to Maximilian Colby. <laughs> no, can we just, just, we don't have to talk about the World Cup and Molly Roggins' amazing abilities. Talk about transferable skills. Performance-enhancing drugs are still in play. <laughs> but if you don't know what spike ball is, you got to know what spike ball is. It is uh, so. Go look it up, Spike. Just Google it and and watch some videos. I keep it in my car at all times, ready to play at any moment. It's absolutely amazing. Sounds like an addict. But we had a World Cup, and we're gonna have one next Labor Day. Mm-hmm. If you want to drive in from all over the country, all over the world, yeah, I mean, you know, we'll, we'll we'll put you up teams of a guy and a girl, and uh, we'll see you next Labor Day. Anyways, Maximilian Colby. All right, so playing as Spike as ball. we're squandering our lives away drinking beer and playing pool at the VFW, occasionally we read stories of saints. There you go. People who do really amazing stuff, unlike ourselves. So, the story of Maximilian Colby, which what I want to basically do today, if, if yesterday was a snack pack, or last one was, I don't know what this is, it's not much more than that. Might string more, cheese. Yeah. String cheese. String cheese. There you go. Um, so, this is a little bit of string cheese for you, uh, in terms of content. It's not substantial, but we're going to just pull off a piece at a time here, you know? Smart. So what we'll do is we'll go to the uh, the end of his life, this, uh, the details of the story that most people know about, and then we'll kind of back up and we'll talk about it. Because what I think is interesting about Maximilian Colby, and I picked up this little book uh, published by Tan, uh, just one of these like little saint books, you know. Rector of my seminary, Father Bear, always used to say, you should always be reading Biography of the Saint at some point. That's something I've never really done, but I admire people that do it. Yeah. Because living in the lives of the saints and living in their stories, it's a very interesting thing. So anyways, picked this up right on the plane yesterday. And uh, was just taken by his life because he wasn't just a guy who at the right moment just did the right thing. Right place, right time. Right place, right time. Just kind of like went for it and the church is like, you're awesome. But his whole life was completely and amazingly heroic. So we'll go back to 1941 here. 
he's in Auschwitz, okay? Uh, he's sent there. Uh, and uh, Auschwitz, I was reading about in this book, um, held up to 200,000 people. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. I, can't, I just can't even conceive of that. So he comes on, a, on, on one of the trains, um, cattle cars, with about 400 people. About uh, a dozen priests are with him. And uh, they show up, and they end up in uh, in uh, Block 14. Okay, and uh, and so the story goes: end of July 1941, prisoner escapes from Block 14, and that night they had heard whisperings of it that it was going to happen. And uh, sure enough, um, one of the guys escapes. They can't find him, and so the next morning, uh, Fritz is the name of the the colonel, whoever it was who was uh, kind of the commander of of Auschwitz at the time, lines him up for roll call. And he dismisses everybody for their daily work except for cell block 14. And they stay standing for the entire day. The entire day. Could you imagine this? Now, Colby at this point is, he's had tuberculosis his whole life uh, and consumption. Is that the same thing? I yeah. don't know anything about medicine. Yeah. Okay. Consumption. I always read, everybody has consumption in um, Dostoevsky's novels for some reason. I'm like, oh, that doesn't that oh, sound yeah. good. So Colby at this time uh, is only in his mid-40s, but he is... Um, he is uh, seriously ill, and he stands at attention for the entire day in the sun with cell block 14. Do you need a minute over there? You doing okay? I'm just, my microphone's not screwed You're just in always properly. readjusting, you know? I paid attention so well last week. Whatever. But you're not going to have much to say on this because I'm telling a story here. Go ahead. You they know, had no idea that I was adjusting my microphone. You know the story. I was okay. being all secretive. You were being very secretive. Okay, so, so the story goes, as we know, um, they come back in the evening and Fritz says, because um, one of you has escaped, 10 will be executed, will be, are going to the starvation bunker. And that was the rule for everybody. For it wasn't everybody. just unique. Yeah. It wasn't just unique. That was always the rule. Everyone knew that. And he says, ten, and he says next time it's going to be 20. So he picks out 10 out of the line from, cell, from the cell block. And uh, so, suddenly one of the victims cries out, my poor wife and my children, I shall never see them again. And he falls to his knees, right? Uh, and the young man starts weeping and crying. Uh, and screaming out, uh, begging for mercy. And then, of course, the famous moment happens um, where as they start to walk away, Maximilian Colby steps out and and Fritz looks at him and he says, what does this Polish pig want with me? And Colby says, right, let me take this man's place. I want to die in the place of him. And what's interesting is that uh, Fritz is kind of dumbfounded and he asks him why. And this is the beautiful thing is that Colby says something in a way that will be received by him. You know what I mean? He doesn't say something heroic or glorious. He just says, he speaks to Fritz in a way that would permit him to do it. He says, so Fritz says, why do you want to die in this man's place? And he says, because I'm old and useless. My life is not worth anything. Well, he has a wife and a family. So he's basically saying, like trying to think like a Nazi, I'm worthless because I have tuberculosis and I'm old, right? And uh, this guy, you'll get more work out of him. And so in a moment of kind of amazing, something amazing, he permits him, right? But Fritz asks him, who are you? And he says, a Catholic priest. It's beautiful, Hmm. right? Catholic priest, there's a moment of silence. And then Fritz says, go. And Maximilian steps into the ranks. uh, And the other guy steps out. And they march and they head into a separate starvation bunker, right? Block 13, which is the death chamber, uh, which is surrounded by an 18-foot wall. All of the cells are underground, yep. and it's all starvation. So he and his nine companions go in, and they're in this room together, and they starve um, starve him out. Most of them die within a week, but Maximilian's kind of leading them in prayer, praying the rosary, hearing confessions as they're dying of starvation. Um, now, again, th- we talk about these things, but I- I'm just thinking to myself, 
like to starve to death. You know, I go four hours without a breakfast burrito or like Chipotle or something. Yeah. And I'm just like, I'm famished. I'm Last die. night we went to Ted's Montana Grill and I hadn't eaten in what, six hours? And yeah. I was like, I am ravished. I'm literally dying. My stomach is eating itself out. So I can't even imagine kind of what these guys are going through. Only four prisoners survive into the second week. So everybody dies in the first week. Uh, Maximilian, though, amazing, and being the frail kind of consumptive that he is, somehow manages to survive so long, 13 days, that they actually have to come in and inject carbonic, uh, carbolic acid into him, and they kill him by execution mm-hmm. right there. His final words issued from his mouth, Ave Maria, as they execute him. Really? And he dies right there, right? Now, what's interesting is that a Polish orderly witnessed this whole thing. So the account that we have of Maximilian's life is not from the Nazis who killed him, but it's from this Polish guy who was his job in Auschwitz was to work in Block 13 in the death camp. So he witnessed and he heard everything, and that's how we have it documented. Uh, And he describes it as this. He says, when I opened the iron door, Father Maximilian was no longer alive, but he seemed as if he was still alive. His face was unusually radiant. This is his dead face. His eyes were opened wide, staring into space. He seemed as though lost in rapture. I shall never forget that face. Amazing. And so uh, he dies, again, in a time and in a place that would be seemingly unknown. They continue with their life. They continue with the executions. The war continues and goes on. Um, But what's amazing is that after it passes and then the revelation of this heroic act comes out, Mm -hmm. then all of a sudden it starts to kind of get put together with his life. And then in the 1970s, Paul VI beatifies him. And then 82, the loon. We, We moved the loon in. The loon clock yeah. strikes. Goble. Where do you get this crap? Lori Brown. Lori Brown. Kathy Brown. Kathy Brown. Joe Brown. Joe Brown. Nathan Brown. <laughs> That's the whole family. <laughs> Who's Nathan Brown? <laughs> He's the whole family. They I gave it to you. me. Okay, gotcha. So Colby is canonized uh, on October 10th, 1982, uh, the year before we were born. And uh, the amazing thing is the man that he saved was at his canonization. Wow. Isn't that incredible? With his family. And I was just thinking about on the plane, I was like, I wonder what it's like to be that man, you know? I wonder what it's like to live his life from that point forward. Yeah. Um, In The Idiot, I'm reading by Dostoevsky right now, um, he talks about, um, the main character talks about the experience of watching a man who was at the guillotine in France, and then at the last minute there was a a plea for mercy, and he was given his life. And Dostoevsky actually had that literally happen to him. He was accused as a right. communist. Right. And he was about to be executed. He was standing in front of a firing squad, and then they sent him to Siberia. And in the novel, he's talking about Pr- Prince Mishkin, who's the kind of the protagonist, is talking about what would the experience of your life be at the moment when you were about to be killed and then lived? Mm-hmm. How would you live the rest of your life? Yeah. It's something interesting to consider. What I, Going back, like... What's interesting about what Maximilian Colby says to the guard is when he asks him, who are you? He doesn't say, I'm Maximilian Colby or I'm prisoner 0654, you know, because they, yeah, they, they didn't know him. They didn't, they didn't even know their names, but something of his identity as a priest, not like I'm a fireman, I'm a teacher, mm-hmm. I'm a Mormon, um, I am a Catholic priest. And that meant something to him. And it means something um, to us, I mean, as priests, because that's his deepest identity. I mean, his, his priesthood 
and I've I've thought about this so many times. His priesthood is no less priestly because he is not able to offer the sacraments. Right. He's not, you know, he's not sending emails. He's not visiting the homes. He's not, you know, not wearing uh, clerics. Not wearing clerics. But he is a priest, and when he suffers in the death camp, he suffers as a priest. Um, in the same way, I mean, in, a, in an analogous way, the same people that died there that were baptized, you know, were bap- were were dying as as Christians. They were they that was their identity. And the Jews, I mean, the Jews who died, they were dying in part in exile and in in horrible conditions. So, um, I I don't know. Just I've always loved that. Yeah, it, it is beautiful. I mean, that kind of deep identity as a priest. And I think the thing that that um, that I was again struck by was this man knew who he was because of his knowledge of Christ, which was mediated completely by Our Lady. Mm-hmm. So tying back into um, our talk last week, uh, the role of Mary at the foot of the cross and receiving Christ and, and, and sharing in the cross of Christ and the role that Mary has in that, his whole life was focused on who he called the Immaculata, right? So Mary, it was a devotion to Mary the Immaculate, Mary Immaculately Conceived, which is from Ephesians 4, where the church has talked about as Immaculata, the Latin. Only if Father Brian Larkin was here. Yep. But Mary is the image of the church as the perfect, as the immaculate one, actually biblically rooted. Uh, and he called himself the Knight of the Immaculata. And so his primary work through his life was what he called uh, founding the Militia Immaculata, right? The militia, so these knights um, who uh, are devoted to the Immaculata and to the conquest of the world for Christ through her intercession. Mm-hmm. So, um, anyways, just a brief background on his story. Born in uh, 1894, and um, a Polish family, uh, and uh, sick as a child. Kind of a rambunctious child, kid, you know? Kind of a Nathan Goebel type. Uh, a little wild. Drove his mom a little crazy. Really? Does it say that in there? It does say that, yeah. But then something happens when he's about eight, and he has this kind of crazy conversion that just deepens in his heart. Something kind of sears into his heart, and he just kind of... Something changes. At age 13, he goes to minor seminary. This is back in the day. I know. Crazy. Uh, for the Capuchin, or not the Capuchin, excuse me, the uh, Friars Minor Conventual. Mm-hmm. So there's three main strands of Franciscans, right, historically. The OFMs, Order of Francis Minors, Order of or Order of Friars Minor, Order of Friars Conventual, and the Order of Friars Capuchin. Mm. And I believe the OFMs are the first, and then the Conventuals, and then the Capuchins. I think the unique thing about the conventuals is the the convent life. They live the stability of the monastic life. Okay. I think not an expert. Is that on what this. he is? He's an OFM conventual. Okay. Yeah. Which are the guys who run Marytown. Yeah, and that's so that's what I gather, but again, not not too much of an expert on this. Speaking of which, Benedict Rochelle passing away on Saturday. Holy man. Yeah, he gave us a retreat in what was that, two thousand eight, two thousand nine or something. And we called it story time with Grandpa Catholic. Grandpa Catholic, yeah. Um but it was great. I mean, he would he would just go off and just tell it like it is. And I was a Shabbat goyim. I was a Shabbat goyim in the days. I didn't like pasta. I mean, who doesn't? I mean, I was a German. I didn't like pasta. Yeah. Well, God bless him. And uh, if you don't know the name Father Benedict Rochelle, definitely yeah. want to know. Uh, a heroic man uh, who uh, reformed and um, had a, a Franciscan community, uh, many of whom... 
uh, we've known over yeah. the years. A lot of guys from Steubenville have joined the community. What are community they? of Friars of the Renewal. Yeah, Franciscan, Franciscan Friars of the Renewal. CFRs. And he was always on EWTN. He did, I think it's Sunday Night Live with Benedict Grishel. Maybe one day when John and I clean up our clean up our act and maybe grow in virtue a little bit, EWTN will have us on and we'll have our own Sunday Night Live. Yeah, right. Be more Saturday Night Live. Someday. Wink. Wink. So um, September 11th, 1911, uh, Friar Maximilian takes his vows as a, as a Friar Minor Conventual. A year later, he's sent to... Gregorian University in in Rome, where he's beginning and doing his theological studies. And uh, while he's in Rome, he gets together with a couple of his buddies, and they start something called the Militia of Mary Immaculate, right? Knights of the Immaculata. And it's a very simple thing. It's uh, devotion to Our Lady, the, you know, the praying of the rosary, uh, devotion, especially the miraculous medal. Um, but this kind of deep filial love uh, and, and, and the sense of, of fighting for souls in the world under the patronage and the protection of Mary. It's mm-hmm. very beautiful. There's a story about um, him where he dropped a, um, a miraculous medal. He was getting in trouble from this Masonic group next to, um, next to where they're in Rome, and he dropped a, a miraculous medal into the whatever it was. He dug it into the ground. Mm-hmm. This is going to freak Protestants out if they're listening to this. But, and the next day... They whatever they seize and they have to vacate that place. So the Masons literally move out of the neighborhood wow. because of that. So Rich Gagney and I, who's now a CFR, way back in the day when we were crazy and stupid, read this story. Two thousand four, we're on Totus to us, and we're like, let's do that. So we drove around northern Colorado to all the Masonic lodges, bombing them with miraculous medals. <laughs> it didn't work on any of them, but we thought we were pretty awesome. Rich is now father or brother Pius Marie of the CFRs. Yeah. Huh? Back in the, those early days, man, we would find this stuff out, just do crazy stuff like that. So Back in the day. So there are miraculous medals all over, scattered all over the um, uh, the Masonic temples of uh, northern Colorado right now, but unfortunately not with the efficacy of uh, a saint. So uh, he goes back to Poland, and the work of the militia continues. And this is what's crazy. Within, within 15, 20 years, it grows from him and four of his buddies to two million members. So two million members all over the world founding and working in the Militia Immaculata. What else is interesting is that their focus was with technology, right? So they would actually be a great patron for yeah. people who suck at using technology. And they actually had a lot of trouble going through. But the printing press, all kinds of things that they had yep. um, at the service of evangelization. And, they, and this is really early on. This is the 30s and the 40s. And so they have radio, I think they had radio, um, but they're doing especially publications. Yeah, they uh, the Night of the Immaculata was the name of this editorial that they would send out, but just an amazing stories. So the apostolate continues to grow, and eventually he is like, we need to go found a place, a physical place where we can continue this effort. And so he founds a city in Poland. And I'm going to butcher this, Karanski would be horrified. Nipolakanau. Nepalakanau, something like that. Nepal, well, let's call it Nepalakanau. How does that sound? Why not? <laughs> Nepalakanau, the city of the Immaculata. This is, becomes a city of 600 friars, yeah. 600 guys. Yeah. It becomes the largest monastic community in the world, and it's a city of literally all monks under the direction of Maximilian Kolbe, and they're all doing uh, works of evangelization as the Militia Immaculata uh, using technology in these early stages for the evangelization of the world. It's just unbelievable. So then at a certain point, he's on a train, and he meets these Japanese students. And God inspires him to go say, go found a 
Nepalakas, Stanislaw, whatever, in Japan, right? Yeah. Neopolislaw. You want to give it a shot? No. There's too many... There's there's no vowels in Polish. It's just all G, Y, Z, X. Um, So he goes to Japan to found... And he goes to Nagasaki. Yep. And he founds the community before the bombing. Yep. And they're there uh, in the aftermath of it. But during the bombing of Nagasaki, the city... The Immaculata City there is untouched, even though it's right in the city. Hmm. It, it's completely unaffected by, by the devastating effects of the of the bomb. But then, of course, their presence there becomes primarily one of orphanage. There's just thousands of kids kind of wandering the streets and these different things. And so hmm. they do all this work there. Then he goes to India to found one uh, with not a lot of success, actually, which is actually kind of refreshing sometimes. It's like, okay, thank you. <laughs> sometimes they do fail. Unlike us who fail all the time. Um, but uh, then he goes back uh, and is elected uh, to head the community in Poland again. And then it gets crazy. His first arrest happens. Uh, and he's um, kind of sent to like a like a holding prison. It wasn't to a, a concentration camp. Uh, but he's sent there. And then all of the work starts to be discontinued. Uh, you know, kind of destroyed. This is like late 1930s. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there's some stories of his final words to them about a year before the whole destruction, before um, Poland uh, is invaded by Germany. And he's starting to recognize uh, this is going to get really bad um, and everything's going to get crazy. And then that finally leads to his second arrest um, when the Gestapo comes. This is in, in February of 1941, which will eventually lead up to the July and the August uh, death that he experiences. So uh, what we have is a man who, how do I say this? He did unbelievable things in the eyes of the world, watched it all destroyed, and did something even more heroic in one moment for one man, and then died. In a moment of destruction. I mean, he was destroyed. Exactly. And I think that's what's incredible, is that he had this, in, in the eyes of the world, incredibly worldly success, right? God was blessing his ministry, yeah. And it was incredible what he was accomplishing. And then it was all destroyed. Everything, the, the city was destroyed. The apostle was destroyed. The militia, everything was destroyed. And then all of that was a preparation for this final heroic act mm-hmm. that was the ultimate cause for his canonization. And I think that's the interesting thing, is that by his fruits, we will know them. When we listen to Christ say those words, we have to, we have to hear them, but it doesn't always translate into the world, right? Sometimes it does. This is an example of a man who who did something incredible in the eyes of the world, um, but then ultimately watched it all destroyed, and it didn't phase him. Mm-hmm. It wasn't. It wasn't his. It, it, he didn't die a frustrated, miserable, failure. angry yeah. failure. Yeah. But he he did something even more heroic, right? Yeah, and uh, on a final note, uh, I had the opportunity to go to Auschwitz in two thousand and nine. I think. Um, and we got to go into the cell block and we were walking through and there was a lot of people and everything. And then the guys that I was with, Daniel Chuchi and, and Mason Fraley, uh, we finally come to the cell and we're totally struck because the cell is just, you know, prison cell, vacant, empty, except for the Paschal candle. Huh. There's no other signs or symbols like, you know, I mean, every once in a while you see like, you know, somebody etched a cross or, or like there's an image of a sacred heart um, that I think is the cover of Love Alone is Credible. 
Um, it is, yeah. In uh, by Balthazar, the Ignatius Press, the cover that they use is an image of the Sacred Heart that was um, etched by a prisoner at Auschwitz. But in his cell, the only thing is a Paschal candle, and it's a it's a naked Paschal candle. It's not like a um, there's not like the 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 wax covering where like, you know, 2014 and the cross and everything else, but you can tell it's a Paschal candle. That to me was such a wonderful and powerful sign of his life was configured to Christ and he died. And the Paschal candle for us is a symbol of the life of the resurrection, the victory of the resurrection, the victory of the cross and the resurrection, you know, because as we say, um, as we, you know, put the nails into the, into the Paschal candle by his holy and glorious wounds. Right. Um, may we be, I don't know, by his holy and glorious wounds. Saints. Amen. What Amen. a saint. And we're talking about Amen. 70 years ago, this guy. It's, and it's incredible. yesterday was the Feast of St. Faustina. There you go. Uh, yesterday was the Feast of St. Faustina. Today we're talking about Maximilian Kolbe. Um, uh, we were there at Auschwitz on the day, on the feast day of St. Uh, Edith Stein. And then John Paul II's feast day is coming up in you know, a couple weeks on the 22nd. That's right. They were all living in Poland in like a, say like a 250 mile radius. It's probably less than that. It's amazing. Um, and they're all right there. And the power, these these Polish saints that really like, you know, some of them died in uh, total forgottenness. No one should ever remember this guy's name. They burned Edith Stein alive. And, you know, nobody knows where her body is. And yet uh, somehow they are more alive now than ever. So Amen. Chin chin. Chin chin. Chin dobre. Chin dobre. The uh, final shout out here before we close it up. When I was in Chanhassen, Minnesota, this is unrelated, Minnesota, but there's a couple of listeners up there, and uh, about six months ago I told them to give them a shout out. There you so go. finally getting to it. So Neil and Emily Maxwell. Okay. Uh, shout out, and uh, David Rausch. And what's the, what's the thing for uh, Lake Wobegon? Uh, where the women are strong, the men are good looking, and all the children are above average. Or above Chanhassen, average. Chanhassen, Minnesota. The shout-out I want to give is to Seth Damore uh, and One Billion Stories, who has placed ah. his um, uh, effort of evangelization, One Billion Stories, under the patronage of St. Maximilian Colby. So Beautiful. Um, he's kind of a, our brother in this um, in this diocese and, and has done a lot of good work for us and especially for John um, of, of recent. So um, if you haven't checked out One Billion Stories, check it out. CatholicStuffPodcast at gmail.com. That's it. We'll see you next week. See you next week.